saw a uh, cartoon, Calvin and Hobbes cartoon recently that kind of caught my attention, uh, and I'll, I'll read it along with you. Calvin there says, nothing I do is my fault. My family is dysfunctional. My parents won't empower me. Consequently, I am not self-actualized. My behavior is addictive functioning in a disease process of toxic codependency. You might need to read that sentence five or six times before you did it. Get it, I did. I need holistic healing and wellness before I'll accept any responsibility for my actions. To which Hobb responds, one of us needs to stick his head in a bucket of ice water. Calvin concludes, I love the culture of victimhood. Last week, we, uh, we talked about blame shifting. We talked about uh, passing the proverbial buck. Uh, God had created uh, a perfect world in which Adam and Eve uh, could live together in harmony with him, uh, with creation, and with one another uh, in the Garden of Eden. And Satan introduced another option into that. Uh, Satan created a lie and uh, tried to convince Adam and Eve that uh, they should reject the promises of God, which they consequently did, and uh, everything pretty much fell apart. And so uh, the challenge is for us to consider uh, ourselves victims is the easy thing, but actually look at our own culpability and deal with our sin honestly. And the repercussions that come from that is a bit of a challenge. When God, when God created the world, when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he basically said to them, I want you to trust me. And if you trust me, I want you to know what the repercussions of that will be or, or the result of that will be. It'll be life and friendship with one another and with me and with uh, creation in this glorious habitation, which I have created specifically for you. Now, we also see in the, uh, in the first few chapters, uh, chapter 3, that Satan makes a promise as well when he comes and he speaks with Eve. And basically, Adam says this, everything God said was a lie. You can't trust him. You can't believe that he's actually out for your well-being. God's an egomaniac who's just consumed with himself and keeping you down. So you need to reject him. And if you do that, the repercussions of that or the results of that will be that you will become divine. You will become your own God. For Adam and Eve, for whatever reason, Satan was more convincing at that particular moment. And they rebelled against God's command. The immediate consequences, the immediate results of that action, as we talked a little bit about last week, were shame and fear alienation, and disharmony and blame shifting. It was certainly a far cry from what Satan had promised. But now all of that is somewhat of a moot point because God steps onto the scene. And God is about to, uh, to render judgment. God is about to speak what the real consequences are, what the real repercussions are for the actions and the attitude and the rebellion of Adam and Eve as well as Satan's lies. God is going to speak a promise. In fact, he's going to speak several promises. Some of them are a little more difficult than others to hear. Some of them may feel to us like, a, like putting our head in a bucket of cold water. Some of the repercussions, some of the re results that we're going to read about this morning aren't going to feel good to us. They're going to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. They're going to make us maybe a bit uneasy, even though these chairs are very comfortable. They may make us squirm just a bit, but there is also a promise. And as is always the case with God, there's always a hope. So consider with me, if you will, uh, Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 14 through 19, as we consider the promises and repercussions of this passage. 
And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. Some translations say there your desire shall be against your husband. We'll talk about the nuance of that in just a few minutes. And he shall rule over you. To Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together for just a moment. Father, we have been uh, in Genesis looking at the glory of your creation, the glory of the relationship you established between man and woman, the glory of the created order, the glory of the cosmos, and all resting on and stemming from your glory, your creativity, your beauty, your majesty. And now we are uh, turning the corner and looking at the uh, disaster that we have made of it. Father, we would much rather see ourselves as victims. That is a whole lot easier. We would really like to blame somebody else for this mess. The last thing that uh, we would like to do is to let it rest at our doorstep and make it our responsibility. And yet, Lord, that's exactly what it is. And so although this may not be an overly fun passage to look at, uh, it is indeed your truth. And we need to know your truth this morning. So, Father, I pray for our time where we uh, worship you with our minds. We've been worshiping you with our voices, with our hearts, with our emotions as we've sung Hosanna to the Lord. Uh, Glory to your name, Father. Now as we worship you with our intellect and with our minds, we pray that you would speak your truth into our lives. What I say isn't important. It's not relevant. The words of man are are empty and, and hallow. It's only the eternal word of God that brings power and transformation into our lives. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would do that. Father, forgive me for my sin. Uh, Please keep me from being a stumbling block for anyone hearing your word this morning. Lord Jesus, come and be our teacher, we pray in your name. Amen. I'm going to hopefully walk through this passage in a relatively simple, straightforward way. I want to look at each of the the statements that God makes to each of the people. Uh, But when I was younger, my mother and my grandmother, before my mother, always taught me that ladies go first. So we're going to start with Eve. And uh, we're going to spend some time with Eve, and then we're going to move on to Adam. And then we're going to go back and see the initial conversation God has uh, with the serpent, with Satan, uh, to put the the conversation with Eve and with Adam into their proper context. But I want to kind of pick it apart that way, and hopefully it'll make sense as we go on. So first of all, uh, Eve, God speaks to her in uh, verse uh, 16, and and it says this, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, 
This is not necessarily the easiest verse of Scripture to understand just on the face of it, but I think uh, if we'll be patient and pick it uh, apart just a little bit or or try to dissect it, so to speak, perhaps it will make uh, pretty clear sense to us. I think the bottom line of what's being said here is that woman's greatest joy would now be mixed with her greatest pain. I believe that God is speaking here both of a physical pain. I think that's the obvious understanding here. I will greatly increase your pain in, in childbearing. I think that, that makes very clear sense to us. But I also believe there's a nuance to this word when God talks about Eve bringing forth children. And I believe he's speaking also about her emotional pain. That this won't just be physically taxing and physically demanding and painful, but also that it will be emotionally uh, very difficult for her. The two most intimate relationships in a woman's life, that relationship with her husband and that relationship with her children is now going to be fraught with hurt, is now going to be uh, in a a way uh, warped from what its original intention was to be. Motherhood, the pain of giving birth, and the pain of child-rearing are now staring her in the face as a result of her rebellion not to trust God, not to take Him at His word, and not to live in relationship with Him. If you've ever talked to anybody who's, any woman who's given birth to a child, they will all tell you the same thing, labor pains, that labor. <laughs> it's a lot of work. That's the, that's the right word to use. There's no question that, that childbearing uh, is a very painful process. Uh, our first son, Nathan, took about 24 hours. Cindy was in labor. That was not a pleasant experience. I was exhausted when we were done. I was, it, it, was, it was tough. And it was pretty difficult for Cindy as well. You're laughing because what I just said was an extremely foolish statement. Cindy bore all the pain. She bore all the struggle. But then as we've raised three children together, I've watched that struggle continue in her life, seen a lot of joy. I've seen a lot of, of moments. Again, this is, this is a mixture. God is, says the, the pain will increase, but he doesn't say it will only be pain. He doesn't say it will only be dismay. It will only be discouragement. There's joy as well. But I've seen also the, the struggle that she's had in her relationship with the kids when sometimes they haven't made the best decisions. I was actually taking a walk with one of our kids the other day, and, uh, and this particular child was talking about their relationship with mom and, and uh, saying mostly positive things, but, but saying, you know, sometimes she gets kind of down. And I said, you know what, you, you don't see mom behind closed doors like I do. You know, and I can tell you about the times as you were growing up, you know, when mom, you know, would cry, when mom would hurt over the pain you were feeling over the way somebody else was treating you, or over, over maybe the decisions that you had made. Those were very personal to her. And they will be till the day she dies. Part of that is a result of man's rebellion, of that choice that Adam and Eve made in the garden, that this pain, both emotional and physical, would be increased. But there's also a statement about the, the marriage relationship being marred. When God says to to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now that word desire is only used three times in all of scripture and only only two times in exactly the same uh, text, exactly the same writing. And if your Bible is open and you look across the page perhaps or you flip one page over to chapter four, you will see God use that exact same word when he's talking to Cain about sin's desire to master him. It's the exact same word in the Hebrew. The idea here for Eve is that this relationship that was supposed to be built on love 
and on trust in the leadership role of her husband Adam is now going to be mingled with resentment and with the longing to take charge, a longing to be the one who is in control, the longing to be the one who is actually the leader in the relationship. Uh, Susan Fall wrote several years ago in the uh, Westminster Theological Journal, she was trying to sum up this, this word desire and, and, and how it was going to warp the marriage relationship. And here's what she wrote. She says, The woman has the same sort of desire for her husband that sin has for Cain. That is, a desire to possess and control him. The desire disputes the headship of the husband. As the Lord tells Cain that he should do, he should master or rule over sin, the Lord also states that the husband should do that, to rule over his wife. The words of the Lord in Genesis 3.16, in this case of the battle between sin and Cain, do not determine the victor of the conflict between husband and wife. These words, however, mark the beginning of the battle of the sexes. The woman... Excuse me, as a result of the fall, the man no longer rules easily. He must fight for his headship. Sin has corrupted both the willing submission of the wife and the loving headship of the husband. The woman's desire is to control her husband, to usurp his divinely appointed headship, and he must master her if he can. So the rule of love founded in paradise is replaced with struggle and tyranny and domination. God says to the woman, I will promise you this because of what you've done. The two most intimate relationships in your life are going to cause you physical and emotional pain. William Blake wrote it this way. Joy and woe are woven fine together. It's a result of Eve's decision. What's the result of Adam? What's the repercussion? What are the, what's going to happen because of what Adam has done? Well, if you look at verses 17 through 19, we'll see what God says to Adam. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, and that's the same, that pain word is the same word that God uses for Eve and her pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Work now for Adam becomes the paramount struggle of his life. God created Adam for a purpose, to be put him in the garden, to nurture it, to tend it, to care for it, and to be in relationship with him, and to be in relationship with his wife in perfect manner. Work was a blessing given by God to Adam. He gave Adam a purpose. He gave Adam a reason to be living in the garden. And now when you think about work, you might think of it as, yeah, somewhat of my purpose. But how often have you heard somebody say, boy, this, this job is backbreaking. This job is just wearing me out. I'm, I'm exhausted. The ground that at one point was his ally, that brought forth wonderful vegetation for him to cultivate, to explore, to cherish and to love, has now become his enemy. Thorns and thistles it will produce. It will fight him every step of the way. Work is no longer measured by uh, joyful stewardship, but rather it is measured by the sweat of his face. I got a a, a book last week. Uh, Somebody handed it to me in the office. Um, Lisa, our executive administrator, handed me a book on a result of the the, um, survey that we took a couple years ago. They've been doing some further study Uh, on the uh, reveal survey and one of the things they've been studying is the role of pastors in the church 
uh, and she gave me the segment of the, the results of the study that had to do with pastors in the church. And as I was reading through uh, some of the, the text, one of the things started to talk about the expectations of a pastor. And it talked about, you know, being a great preacher and being a great communicator and being somebody who cares about everybody and knows about everybody and being somebody who's the, the vision keeper of the church and being uh, someone who uh, is well organized and, and can rally other folks around them and being somebody who shows up when people are in crisis and care for them. And it's going on on the kind of the end of this fairly lengthy paragraph. The, the author of the study concludes, you know, when you stop and think about it, who would really want this job? Now, I'm not here to say, oh, woe is me, Okay. 93.7% of the time, I really like my job. But the facts are that in every job, there are moments where it's painful. You can say, you know, it isn't it great to be a teacher. You might be sitting here this morning, you're a teacher, you're getting ready to go back to school. You're excited and you're pumped up and you're ready to go. And I guarantee you by the time spring break rolls around, you're going to be dragging just a little bit. You're going to come home and say, who would want to be a teacher? Who would want to put up with parents' unreasonable expectations and kids that won't listen? You know, if you're a business person, you say, who would want this job? Who would want to have to fight tooth and nail just to, you know, just to get our clients to, to pay the bills that we send them for the work that we've already done? Every job that you can think of, imagine. Tony LaRusso makes a ton of money managing the Cardinals. Who would want that job? Are you kidding me? The pressure he's under? Every job in the world can be looked at like that. Why? Because man has rebelled against God. And work which once gave us fulfillment and joy and a sense of understanding of who we are in light of our relationship with God is now fraught with difficulty, with pain, with challenge, and with hurt. Not only that, but God says that the blessing of life is now replaced with the impact of death. See how verse 19 ends. You shall eat of this bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. It seems as if the ground wins. (laughs) It seems as if death, perhaps, is going to be triumphant. Gerhard von Rad wrote this about these two conversations with Adam, or these statements about Adam and Eve. Woman's punishment struck at the root of her being as a wife and a mother. The man's strikes at the innermost nerve of his life, his work, his activity, and provision for sustenance. This is really great news, isn't it? (laughs) You're like somebody stuck your head in a bucket of cold water. It's kind of an awful reality check. The, The facts can't really be debated. Life has worked out exactly how God said that it would. I spend enough time in my, uh, in my study with couples struggling in marriages to know that it's exactly played out the right way. Can't tell you how many men I've talked to over the years of my experience of a pastor who said, you know, I've worked so hard and I've gained all this and for what? It seems to me to be nothing. Is this all that defines my life? Friends, I don't have to argue this for you. I think you understand that this is the world in which we live. The real question is, is there any hope? You know, you you come to church to hopefully get some kind of inspiration. Hey, let's okay. We had a great morning in church. We're all going to return to dust and we're going to fight along the way. Isn't that great? (laughs) Can we get more people to come to Green Tree? I mean, you know, this is is pretty down. (laughs) That's why I wanted to save the best and the worst uh, for last and flip the passage on its head because there is hope. These proclamations come against the backdrop of God's judgment against Satan and his statement to Satan about what the result would be 
for his act of rebellion that led Adam and Eve down this path. Look at verse, I'm just going to, I'm going to read verse 14, but I'm going to concentrate just on verse 15. The Lord God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Here's where I really want to spend the time though in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. You need to understand what's being said here by God. There, there's a fight brewing, so to speak. Uh, that word enmity is not a nice word. Okay, you read it on the page of Scripture and you go, oh, that, that, okay, what does that mean? Enmity means a significant or serious ill will. You can use the word enmity, you can replace it with the word hatred. The word enmity means that there is an antagonistic relationship that exists between two people and everybody knows about it. It's not subtle. We're not being polite in front of visitors. We're really at odds with one another and everybody knows. And God says, Satan, that's where you and I are going. We're going to a battle. We're going to a fight. Obviously, Satan hates everything that God has created. Satan's purpose when he tempted Eve was not to help Eve reach the divine. The promise that Satan gave was a flat-out lie. He said, Eve, you eat this fruit, you know what? You're going to be just like God. You're going to be divine. That was a lie. It wasn't true. He was simply trying to destroy the gracious and glorious work of God. That Satan hates everything that God has created is obvious. But what, what might not be so obvious to you this morning, perhaps you haven't seen it before, is that the holy anger of God himself has been stirred and he will not sit idly by and let evil triumph anybody that knows me at all knows that I'm a John Wayne fan that's really not saying it right I'm a John Wayne freak Um, Cindy does not let our our tv in our bedroom be turned on to a John Wayne movie because my favorite habit when we do that is to turn the sound off and then just recite all the lines from memory had I lived in California when he was alive, I would have been classified as stalker. Um, but but there's a, a one of his movies called Chisholm, and, and there's a scene in the movie Chisholm where, where you know he plays kind of the rough rancher who's you know built uh, you know built his ranch from the ground up, and he's pulled himself up by his own bootstraps, and and he's fought for everything he's had, and, and he's got another buddy who's who's kind of a law and order guy, and there's a bad guy who's come to town, and he's trying to take everything over. Uh, and his buddy, uh, Harry Tunstall, has been saying, now, don't, you know, don't fight. Let's let the law run its course. And then Tunstall gets murdered by the bad guy. And then the bad guy kind of throws that in John Wayne's face. You know, like, what are you going to do about it? And John Wayne's response on the, on the street in the, in, the, in the scene, I won't do it. I could quote it exactly. I won't. It'll, it'll take a little bit too long. But basically what he says to the guy is, look, the next time your brand shows up on, on one of my cattle, the next time one of, my, one of my workers trips and falls down on the street and mysteriously comes home with, with a broken arm, I'm not going to the sheriff. I'm not going to the judge. I'm not going to the governor. I'm coming to see you. And the guy says, well, that seems like a threat. And John Wayne's character says, wrong word. It's a fact. And then he pops him right in the nose. It's a great scene. (laughs) Children, don't try that at home. (laughs) I see little brother going, it's a fact. Boom. (laughs) Pastor Tom said, that's how you settle stuff. Um, but But there's something stirred in the heart of this character that says, this is wrong. And this isn't going to stand. And friends, what we see introduced here is the holy, righteous indignation of God. And if you listen carefully, you can feel the air crackle with tension. You can see God fix his gaze on Satan 
who glares back in defiance. And it's as if God is saying, Satan, you want them? You come and get them. And I'm not letting them go. And in this moment where man has, has thrown the promises of God out the window, when we see man at one of his worst places, at one of her worst places in rebellion, and then in running and hiding and then blaming one another, doing everything but taking responsibility for themselves, God promises that this enmity will be personified in the offspring of the woman. Offspring there is, is translated in other translations, seed. It's in the singular in the Hebrew. God says, I'm going to send my champion. That's what he says in verse 15. I'm going to put enmity between your seed, your descendants, and hers. Between him and you. You will bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. All of that is in the singular, which means God is pointing to one person who's going to come and do battle with Satan in order that evil may be abolished and that the righteous reign and rule of God will be established forever. Satan will be crushed. God's man will be bruised in the process, yet the outcome is sure and certain. Now, up to this point in Genesis, every promise God has given has been fulfilled. And there's no reason to think that God is now not going to fulfill his promise. And if you know the rest of the story, if you've been around Scripture at all, you know that we find the culmination of this battle on the cross. And up to the cross, if you read the Gospels carefully, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, if you want to read a theologian on this that's done a great job with it, Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, who was a professor at Princeton years and years ago, wrote about the battle that took place all through the life of Jesus. And he goes back and he looks at how, how uh, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and how Joseph was going to put her away, uh, not take her home to be his wife because he thought she had sinned and how that would, that would really uh, leave Mary in a bad place. And yet God intervenes and, and shows Joseph he needs to bring her home. Uh, how Joseph uh, and Mary are protected from Herod trying to kill the child Jesus by giving them an escape route to Egypt. How Mary and Joseph somehow, how does this happen? They're in Jerusalem with their one child and they travel back to their town Nazareth and they spend a whole day walking and nobody knows where Jesus is. <laughs> we, we lost the kid back in Jerusalem. And Barnhouse says, you know, you can see behind in the shadows lurking Satan's agents trying to put Jesus at a young age in a vulnerable position. And how Jesus, when he starts his earthly ministry, how the first thing that happens is he's in the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. And how time and time again, Satan stirs up the mobs to, to stone him, to push him off a cliff, to drown him in the Sea of Galilee. Satan throws everything he can at Jesus in order to keep him from the cross because he knows what's going to happen. He knows what God said back in the garden. He was there. It was said to him. And he wants to do everything he can to keep that from coming true. But the power of God has been stirred. And the holy righteous indignation of God will not rest until evil is put to flight. And that is good news. That is a result in this story on which we must hang our hat. Because God is not just going to defeat Satan, but Satan's defeat, Satan's demise means our redemption. It means the redemption of all of creation. It means the new heavens and the new earth of whom we will be citizens if our faith is in Christ. It means forgiveness. It means restoration. It means the cold bucket of water is replaced with the healing streams of grace. What are the takeaways from this passage this morning? How do you go out and, and live in this truth and this promise, this wonderful consequence that there's going to be a Savior who will come, that the repercussions are not all bad, but there's actually good news in this text. 
Let me give you just a couple of thoughts this morning in way of application. The first one is this. We need to be aware of the repercussions, both positive and negative. We need to understand that even as disciples of Christ, if our faith is in Jesus, we still have the struggle. There are days when I'm going to go to work and it's going to be a bad day. There are moments when my wife and I are going to get at odds because of what is promised in Genesis 3. Those moments are going to happen, but we need to see that through the lens of the promise. That redemption has begun, that the root has taken hold and it's going to grow and thrive in our lives. We need to simply be aware of the circumstances, the reality for what it is. Now I'm going to run down a real far side road, but, I, but I, 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 the hard part of a sermon... Debbie Hall, I'm going to put you on the spot. What's the hard part of a talk? Figuring out what? What not to say, right? You told me that a long time ago. <laughs> she forgot she told me that a long time ago. Um, this is one of the things I thought I wouldn't say, but I'm putting it in anyway, so I'm going to keep you a couple more minutes. I want to talk to the young ladies in the congregation. You need to know your sinfulness in this verse. You need to understand your tendency. You need to understand that sin has marred your personality to the degree that this pain will be yours and that your desire will be for your husband. Your desire will be to run your household. Your desire will be to usurp his God-given responsibility to care for you and to nurture you. That being said, you need to be extraordinarily selective about the man with whom you will spend the rest of your life. Because if you don't respect him, if, 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 the, if the thread of respect, not love, not passion, but respect, if that thread of respect is not there, your marriage is going to be miserable, and you are going to be miserable, and he's going to be miserable. I tell this to my own daughter all the time. I say, I want a guy who absolutely adores you. I want a guy who thinks you walk on water. And I want a guy who won't put up with your nonsense. I don't mean my daughter's nonsensical at all. She's a wonderful young woman. But she's like every other woman in the world. This is a struggle. This is a, this is a, a, a challenge. And wives, the desire is, is to be in control. And, and, and if your mom would sit down and talk with you honestly about it, she can tell you about those moments where that's the battle within her heart. And so knowing that God's grace can, can change that, knowing that God's grace can do a work in your heart as well as in your husband's to love you the way he should, simply make sure that when you're involved in dating, when you're involved in the selection process, make respect pretty high on your list. Now back to the main part of our story. <laughs> Other application here. Again, wives, are you aware of that struggle in your life? Are you prayerful about it? Are you finding the right balance in your parenting? Are you putting your children on a pedestal? And then being disappointed and hurt and crushed when they fail? Are you experiencing that pain? Or are you allowing the gospel to come and nurture and feed your soul? And to let Christ be your all in all. Let your husband take his rightful place. Your children take their rightful place in your lives. Men, let's admit it, our work has become our idol. We are wrapped up in what we do and not who we are in Christ. I got on the golf course every once in a while, play golf with somebody. Eventually, uh, if I'm playing golf with somebody I've never played before, within the first 10 or 15 minutes, this conversation is going to come up. What do you do for a living? <laughs> not who are you, not, not what defines your life, what kind of person are you, but what do you do for a living? Men, we have let work define us. We have let it consume us. We need to be reminded of that, that yes, work will be a struggle, but Christ can redeem that, and our identity is in him. Our identity is in who he has created us 
to be and how he is restoring what Satan tried to take away. The rest of Genesis is a study on how the repercussions or the results of our sin play out, but always in the shadow of the promise. Because God's fighting mad. (laughs) He will redeem his creation. He will crush the head of Satan. It's a promise. It's a repercussion of which you can trust and take to the bank every day of your life, causing us to be a a people of of sobriety. I don't mean you don't ever drink. I mean, but a people who look at life in a sober, carefully judged manner, measuring our steps carefully. But it also makes us a people of promise, a people that understand that behind the journey and the struggle lies the Word of God, the promises to defeat the work of Satan and to restore his creation, which leads us to be a people of hope. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for uh, this bucket of cold water this morning in a sense. I don't like to think that my work defines me, but it does. I allow it to consume me. I allow myself to be more concerned about being a pastor than being a disciple of Jesus or being a husband to Cindy uh, or a parent to our kids. Father, I know the struggle that the men in this, uh, this room go through to, uh, to find their identity in Christ and to, uh, to live in the promise that God is going to restore us. Father, I don't understand everything my sisters in Christ go through, but your, your words are clear, and my experience tells me that there's, there's a struggle in their hearts as well. And so, Father, I pray for this congregation this morning. I pray for those of us that have walked intimately with you for years and those of us who are here this morning, maybe for the first or second or third time and are just starting to hear some of this stuff and try to figure out our own spiritual journey. Father, I pray that behind the tough news to hear about the results that come from our sin would be the shadow of the promise that Satan has challenged you. And you are more than up to the challenge. You will crush his work. You will redeem your creation. You will save your people. And to that end, Lord Jesus, may every day of our lives be filled with praise and worship of you. We pray in your name. Amen.